You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Mark and stand, if you are able, for the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. Our reading this morning is taken from Mark 4, 21 to 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe... At once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explains everything. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we, are, um, we took a little break for Palm Sunday and Easter. Now we're back in the Gospel of Mark, and it's good to be back. Um, just by way of reminder, in the first chapter of Mark, we, we read that, that Jesus came onto the scene announcing that the kingdom of God was near. The kingdom of God is at hand. We read that in chapter 1. And then from there, the chapters that follow, he begins to display that kingdom through delivering men and women and forgiving people of their sins and welcoming the outcast and healing different afflictions. So he uh, declares it, he displays it or demonstrates it. But what we've noticed as the narrative continues is that Jesus hasn't said much about the kingdom from that point forward. He announces it, but he hasn't said much about it. However, here in Mark chapter 4, we see that Jesus is beginning to now describe the kingdom. So he declared it, he demonstrated it. Now Jesus is taking the time to teach his disciples and to teach this crowd, these crowds uh, and really describe the kingdom of God. And as he does so, he does so through stories. 
In fact, look at me in verse 30. We read this. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? So when Jesus intends to describe the kingdom of God, he reaches for a story. In fact, he reaches for a number of stories. Flannery O'Connor was a famous American novelist and short story writer. And she was once asked if she could sum up one of her stories in, in, in a short sentence. Can you just give us your story in one simple sentence? And her response was very insightful. She said this. She said, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. In other words, if she could simply tell you what she wanted to say in a sentence, she would have never written the story in the first place. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating that stories are the only containers that are large enough to carry some truths. And I get to witness this within this church, within this room, on, on almost a weekly basis. As I am communicating, as I'm teaching the Bible, as I'm, as I'm preaching, there are there, there's a clear change that occurs in this room, in this sanctuary, when I go from simply sharing information, as important as biblical information is, when I go from sharing information to telling stories that are embedded with the truths of who God is and embedded with how we interact with God, there is a shift, there's a change. We are naturally drawn in to stories. And the question is, Why? And I believe it's because God has actually wired us for stories. It's how we think. It's how we imagine the world. It's how we imagine the future. It's how we imagine life. Why is that? Why do we think in stories? Why do we imagine in stories? Well, it's probably important to note that by God's grace, he has actually written us into the greatest story ever told. The story of redemption, the, the biblical narrative is just that. It's a story. A story that centers up around God in the personal work of Jesus Christ at work in the world to redeem humanity. And by God's grace, he has welcomed us into that story. We find our place in that narrative. Now, this, this is really the idea behind the parables that we see here in Mark. At times, parables are really the only form of, of communication that can really capture the, the astonishing mystery and the enormous gravity of God's kingdom. I mean, God's kingdom, it's such a huge topic, such a huge concept. And so he tells a series of parables. In fact, look at me, verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. So in other words, he spoke parables because that was the way they were able to understand it. That was the way they were able to grasp this concept of the kingdom of God. And so it's these parables, these stories or illustrations that we're going to consider today. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this in, in, under three headings. Uh, the pictures of the kingdom, the pattern of the kingdom, and lastly, the person of the kingdom. Let's look first at the, the pictures of the kingdom. Now, what we see in Mark 4, if you remember a few weeks back, the way Mark 4 opens up is that these crowds come to Jesus and he's teaching them. And he's teaching them in parables. And what he offers these men and women that are there to listen to Jesus, he offers them these pictures of the kingdom, little snapshots that engage the imagination in order to uh, paint word pictures. But it's really interesting to me, at least, 
what kind of pictures he gives them to describe the kingdom of God, such a big theme like that. When you think of kingdom, what do you imagine? I imagine thrones and castles and high walls and, you know, like these, these big pictures of, of royal grandeur and that sort of thing. But I find it interesting, the pictures that he gives to these, these crowds. When he goes to describe the kingdom, he does it like this. It's like a lamp. It's like a measuring cup. It's like a seed. Oh, don't forget, it's like a garden shrub. Right? We, we think, we, we're thinking he's going to give us these pictures of royal grandeur. He's like, no, no. A lamp, a measuring cup, a seed, a shrub. Now, when we, we, we say things, when we say things, we go big. We say things like, I love you to the moon and back. What does that even mean? <laughs> Like, who is capable of loving someone to the moon and back? We always reach for superfluous speech. Like, it's never like, we did a great job. It's like, man, I murdered it. We slayed it. So we always exaggerate our speech to describe the things that we're, we're looking to describe. But I find this interesting. Could you imagine if you were telling someone you love, you're essentially saying, like, my love for you is like a measuring cup. <laughs> Why don't you use that measuring cup to, like, dig yourself out of that hole, please? Or, you know, like, baby, like, I got big plans for us. We're, we're, we're going to be like that seed buried in the dirt. You ready for this? Like, what are, you, what are you saying? Already we've seen that the kingdom of God is different. Let's, let's just note that. It's different. This is odd. This kingdom that Jesus is describing is just, is just weird. It doesn't function the way the world does. It doesn't flaunt itself in the way that we would expect. The ways of God's kingdom and the way that God manifests the kingdom are so ordinary that we would actually be tempted to miss it. Or worse, we may be disappointed when we see its evidence in our lives and in the world. And so let's let's just walk through this passage and look at these, these pictures of the kingdom. Jesus essentially lays out these four pictures, beginning with the lamp under a basket, verse 21 through 22. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. In other words, it doesn't make sense to take a light and then hide it. It doesn't make sense to bring a lamp out and then hide it under a bed. It belongs in the open. But there's a twist. There is something hidden now. There's something hidden now that will soon be unveiled. And what this teaches us is that in the kingdom of God, what appears obscured, what appears veiled in one season, will eventually be exchanged for glory and brilliance. As one commentator pointed out, the period of hiddenness is merely the prelude to a period of manifestation. So application for us, when we feel overlooked, Jesus is saying, just you wait. Just you wait. What is hidden now will not be able to be hidden anymore. The second illustration he gives us is that of the measuring cup or the measure. Look with me in verses 23 through 25. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. 
and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's sort of a tongue twister, isn't it? What's Jesus saying here? Well, I think it's important to note the little phrase that begins this sort of image here. Jesus says, take care how you listen. Or as some of your translations read, consider carefully how you listen. So he's referring to how people respond to the light that is now obscured. How people respond in the obscurity. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that our listening is the measure by which we will be measured. That's important. Our listening, our response is the measure by which we will be measured. So we think that we're going to bring God, at the end of our lives, we're going to bring God all of our accomplishments. And we're going to say, look at all the things that we did for you, God. And as God puts them on the cosmic scales, he's going to weigh, it's going to start to teeter and totter. And hopefully, fingers crossed, our good outweighs our bad. And then he accepts us. But listen what Jesus is saying. Here's the measure. Did you listen? How did you listen? What we will receive when the kingdom of God is fully realized depends on what we hear and what we are willing to receive today and how we respond. Essentially, what Jesus is saying, the measure is faith. The measure is faith specifically in moments where Christ and his work is obscured. Faith today brings abundance in the final day. But he's also saying there's also an inverse to this, refusing to listen today. Refusing to trust Jesus today means that there's even going to be more loss and more judgment when that day is revealed. Third, a scattered seed. Look with me, verses 26 through 29. You guys still with me? Okay. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps And he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, Michelle and I, for the first time in our marriage, care about our backyard. The backyard has always been just like the the endless abyss. We just kind of like let it go and tolerate its presence behind the house sort of thing. But this is like the first time that we actually care. And now it's become this like labor of love and patience and maybe you may even call it an obsession. I can't tell you how many times, even this morning, uh, where Michelle will sort of walk up and catch me just like staring out the window like I'm contemplating the future of this garden. I'm contemplating the future of this, this backyard that I've invested so much time and energy into. And there have been so many times where we just like look at these plants and we're thinking, when are these plants going to grow? Like we planted, we've done all the right things. I have this nice little drip system. I mean, like every week they're being maintenance. Every week one of the kids is breaking the sprinklers. I'm out there fixing them. I mean, like I have done everything shy of getting down on my hands and knees and, and like pampering these plants. But I've learned something, and I think I've learned maybe what the parable is alluding to here. Growth can't be forced. Growth in the kingdom can't be forced. I can do everything in the world. I can get down on my hands and knees and I can beg those plants to grow. At the end of the day, they're just going to do what they're going to do. They're just going to grow when they're going to grow. The farmer rests at night. I love that. He doesn't lose sleep. He goes to sleep and he rests in the confidence that the seed 
is inevitably going to grow. He doesn't see it now. He doesn't see it necessarily tomorrow. The seed will grow. No matter how much it seems like nothing is going on, God is sovereignly bringing about life. Even in those moments where he's like, is anything good going to come out of this? He trusts in the confidence that God is at work and he rests at night. See, the parable speaks to so many things in our lives where we have entrusted ourselves to God and we're thinking, God, when is this going to work out? Like, I've given this to you, I'm entrusting this to you, but seriously, what is going on? When are you going to save this friend? When are you going to work out this situation? When are you going to bring this job? When are you going to bring this opportunity? When are you going to heal this marriage? When are you going to reconcile this relationship? God, what are you doing? When are you going to do this? The parable reminds us, we plant the seeds of God's kingdom, and we trust, here's the key, with patience. We trust with patience that no no matter or no amount of ingenuity or human intervention can bring about growth in the kingdom. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how skilled you are. Doesn't matter how dedicated you are. Doesn't matter how much you think you earned it. No amount of human intervention and ingenuity can bring about growth in the kingdom. You guys listening this morning? It's got to be the hand of God. So roll that burden off. Maybe we come in here this morning burdened because we think the responsibility of growth in the kingdom is ours. Roll it off on the Lord. Sleep well, fam. Rest. Seriously. Roll that burden off. God's got it. His hand's involved. He's expanding his kingdom. He doesn't need you. He welcomed you by grace. All right, lastly, uh, the mustard seed. Verses 30 through 32, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? How do we describe this? In other words, Jesus is saying, I got it. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its shade. So the mustard seed, what Jesus is saying, the mustard seed, although extremely insignificant in the beginning, I mean, almost microscopic here, just so small and overlooked, will grow into the largest plant in the garden. This gives me hope. This gives me hope that in the kingdom of God, he takes the small and he takes the overlooked and he transforms them completely, completely. He takes the, you know, what good can come from this? And he brings about life and he brings about flourishing. We, we, we look around and we think to ourselves, like, how is God's kingdom advancing now? How is God's kingdom growing in my life? How is God's kingdom growing in this world? We look into the world and we say things like, I, I, I see evil, I see brokenness, I see hurt, I see a lot of kingdoms. I don't see God's kingdom today. Can we be honest? We look around and we see a lot of kingdoms. We don't see God's kingdom. But the parable reminds us that the day will come when the kingdom of God will surpass all worldly kingdoms. See, we lose ourselves in the story. We're expecting the grand. We're expecting the explosive. And Jesus says, 
hey, here's what you should expect. Small, insignificant, planted in the dirt, and be patient. Because the day is coming where my kingdom will outshine all worldly kingdoms. Where are we in the story? We're waiting. We're waiting. We're Easter people waiting for the resurrection, or waiting for, I'm sorry, for the return of Jesus Christ. We live in light of the resurrection of Jesus, but we're waiting for his return. And as we wait, we wait with patience, and we wait in expectation that that seed is going to grow, and God is going to expand that thing, and his kingdom will outshine all other kingdoms. Amen? Amen? So he gives us these pictures, but not only does God, or rather Jesus, give these pictures, he actually describes, secondly, the pattern of the kingdom, the pattern of the kingdom, how things operate and work within his kingdom. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying the, thing, the way things work in my kingdom are very different. Very different than Rome, very different than Jerusalem, very different than the world. And so if there's anything that's clear, so far for us at least, it's that things in the kingdom don't function the way that they typically do in the world. You should just stop expecting it too. You've got to lay aside those expectations. You've got, you got to stop looking at the kingdom of God through the pattern and the filter of the world. Because there is a very clear pattern in the world. It's very simple once you figure it out. The pattern of the world is to be filled, you've got to fill it. To get somewhere, you've got to climb there. To achieve greatness, you've got to be great. To have, you've got to get it. You want it, go and get it. Don't wait for anyone else. You've got to take control you got to take charge and go do it. Make something happen. It's pretty simple. But this isn't just formed in us because of our cultural influence. This is actually the pattern that is in every single one of us as a result of sin. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, we read that the man and the woman were placed in the garden, and their, their, their commission was to cultivate that garden, to allow that garden to, to flourish and essentially to Edenize the world. And Jesus, or God, was really clear that this paradise would continue and it would flourish with a very specific pattern. Life would thrive under God's authority. Life would thrive under his provision and his care. But if you step out from underneath that authority and that provision and care, well, then death would come about. So flourishing through dependence, brokenness through independence. When faced with the temptation to eat of the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, Genesis 3 tells us this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, who doesn't want to be wise? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here is the pattern of brokenness. To be fruitful, you got to take matters of life into your own hands. To be what you want to be, you've got to take control. You've got to make things happen. To become something, you've got to make yourself something. But what Jesus describes here is just totally otherworldly. Totally otherworldly. That the way to bigness, listen, the way to bigness is through smallness. The way to be great is to become nothing. Renown is reserved for those who find themselves in obscurity. What is hidden will be made manifest. What is overlooked will soon no longer be able to be ignored. What is 
Insignificant is what offers the greatest contribution. To way, the way to grow up and out is to be pressed down and into the ground. Are we willing to receive this? This is the pattern of the kingdom. This is the pattern of the way of Jesus. And what Jesus is alluding to here, but really clarifies elsewhere in Scripture, is really, here's the pattern. The way up is down. The way up is down. Or in other words, the way to life is through death. We're actually going to see that displayed today through baptisms. That's what the picture is. That the way for me to live through Christ is for me to die to myself. It is a celebration of life, but I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but we show up to a baptism to first witness a funeral and then a birth. I die to me. I'm raised to Christ. So what Jesus is, is, is communicating here is that the way up is down. The way to life is through death. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. God creates everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. And everything which God is to use, he first reduces to nothing. If we are to be used in God's hands and we are to fit into the pattern of the way God does things, we need to first note that God creates out of nothing. So here's your, your, your little pep talk today. We got to be reduced to nothing to then be used by God. I know, super encouraging. Easter tide, celebrate. Because this is the pattern of the kingdom, this is also to be the pattern of those who belong to it. That, that is to be the pattern of our lives. This isn't just a theoretical thing. This is a thing that is to guide, the guiding principle of the life of the believer. And Christians throughout history, are, really Christian history is filled with testimonies of men and women who have really grasped this. I, I'm reminded of a story from the 16th century, only uh, you know, months after Queen Mary I, Bloody Mary, after she took the throne in England in 1553, she, she quickly sent this letter throughout the, the British Empire to arrest and imprison England's, uh, England's leading reformers, gospel-proclaiming preachers, because they didn't bend to her religious ideals. And two of the men that were arrested were, were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And after spending two years in prison, they were actually ordered to be killed, to be burned alive on October 16th, uh, 1555. And these two men were escorted to one single stake. So imagine the, the two of them being sort of brought to a, a single stake. And then iron chains were wrapped around their sort of midsection. Both of them received a bag of gunpowder wrapped around their neck. And then they placed uh, kindling wood around them. And I have to imagine not only this, this feeling being one of those men, but I have to imagine the people that are watching this. Perhaps the, their family members or their friends or you know, the men and women that were a part of these men's churches. And I, I, at least myself, I would be thinking at that moment, how is God's kingdom advancing now? How is Jesus on the throne here? How am I, how am I seeing any evidence that Christ rose in victory? As a bundle of burning sticks was placed at their feet, Hugh Latimer spoke these famous words to his friend behind him. Listen to these words. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, I trust, shall never be put out. Be of good comfort, stand strong, be a man, 
because we're about to light a candle. So what was that candle? What was that lamp that was so bright in England? Was it, was it an army that swooped in the, at the last minute to overthrow the guards and to release them? Was it a legion of angels that came down and, and broke them free miraculously and they went free as a testimony of God's miraculous work at, at work in our lives? No, it was their deaths. They died. Their deaths served as the candle that brought the light of the gospel. Here's, here's, what, here's what he was telling his friend behind him. He was essentially saying, we're about to burn, but we're going to burn bright, brother. We're, we're going down, but we're going down in a blaze of glory. And this thing's going to set a light that I don't think will ever be put out. One of the early church theologians Tertullian once said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Is that a kind of church and Christianity that we are willing to receive? This is what he's essentially saying. The more that you kill them, the larger their numbers grow. The more you press them down, the more they stubbornly spread out. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What these parables ought to do for us today. It brings a little death in our hearts, I know that, but it also should fill us with hope. What Jesus is communicating here are words of hope because it reminds us that when we look around our, our lives and we look around the world and we see failure, I, I've got to share with you, yeah, uh, last Sunday, I woke up to coming back onto social media, which is, it was great away, by the way, and the first thing I read was the news of Sri Lanka. First thing, over 200 men and women and children murdered as they gathered to worship the resurrected Christ. I read about one paragraph and I had to close it because I knew I, I, I just couldn't even process. Because I had to come up that very morning and proclaim the victory of Jesus Christ. And if I could be honest, I just didn't know how. These parables give us hope and remind us when we look around and we see failure, that we are reminded that God's purposes will succeed. It's inevitable. When we can't see how things are going to work out for good, they remind us that God is at work faithfully creating a harvest of good that we will reap by his grace. We see the pictures of the kingdom the pattern of the kingdom. Let's look lastly, finally, at the person of the kingdom. And I'm going to have to go quickly through this. Dorothy Sayers was a 20th century novelist, and she wrote a series of detective novels uh, called The Clouds of Witness. And it's a series of books that center around a character named Lord Peter, Whims uh, Lord Peter Whimsy. And as the, the story grows, uh, and, you know, the story kind of continues to build... Uh, you, you see this successful detective. He's sort of like a heartthrob sort of guy. But as successful as he is and, and, and as popular as he is, what becomes clear about this character is that there's something missing in his life. There's something he's sort of, he's got this void. So halfway through the series, an unlikely character appears in the story, and it's a woman named Harriet Vane, who, according to these stories, kind of completes this man, Peter. She brings something into his life that seems to be missing. 
But what becomes clear about the story is that the woman, this woman named Harriet, this character, sounds awfully familiar. She's, uh, this character is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. This woman named Harriet, she writes detective novels. What's going on? What's interesting is that the author, Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the first Oxford, uh, female Oxford grads and was herself a detective writer, had actually written herself into the story. She fell in love. She created this character named Peter, fell in love with him, and then found a way to step into the story herself. Does that sound familiar? This is really the story of the gospel. That Jesus isn't just a good storyteller. He tells a heck of a story, but it's not just that. Really, the key here is that Jesus is the one who himself wrote himself into the story of the world. And if we're mindful of it, and we're looking for it, we actually begin to see the evidences of Jesus all throughout these parables. Let me give just a few examples. In verse 21, when Jesus refers to the lamp that's brought in, some, some commentators point out that the language here is a little bit too passive. It's not that the lamp is simply brought in. He actually personifies the lamp. The lamp comes in. The lamp itself moves in. The Apostle John would write this describing Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What's Jesus doing here? He's describing himself. Jesus is the light that comes to unfold the mysteries of God. Jesus is like that lamp in the parable. Jesus was hidden in the tomb. He was momentarily covered, and yet he burst forth in life and light at the resurrection. Here's another example. In the parable of the scattered seed, look at me in verse 26. Describing the farmer, it says he sleeps, and then he rises. Sound familiar? He lies down, and then he gets up again. He dies, and then he raises. He's condemned for our sin and raised for our justification in life. Jesus is talking about himself. Or how about this, the mustard seed that's sown into the ground, that's buried into the ground, but it rises up out of the ground to become the largest plant in the garden, creating a safe place and refuge for many, a place to come and call home. See, here's the thing about parables. Parables have interpretation. You can interpret parables in a little bit different way than you can maybe like the letters of the Apostle Paul and Peter and those sort of things. They're open to interpretation. We're not building doctrine off of parables, but it's important that we, and, it, and it's vital really that we see the main character of the parables. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the primary person of the kingdom. So let me conclude with this. Let me conclude with Mark's final note here in verse 34. Mark says this, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let me read that one more time. He didn't speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So to the crowds, he spoke in parable form. To his disciples, however, he explained everything. I find that interesting. In public, parables. In private devotion, Full disclosure. So what does that mean for us? What does that show us? So it shows us that the way of the kingdom will remain veiled and confusing 
and obscured for those who fail to abide. There's a difference between being part of the crowd and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what seems to be communicated here is that the secrets of the kingdom are revealed in private devotion to Jesus. What seems to be veiled and obscured, whether that's things in our lives or things in the news or just things about Christianity in general, those veiled things only come into focus, listen, in the presence of Jesus Christ. To make sense of Christ, we move in towards Christ. To make sense of the kingdom, we step into the kingdom. Parables in public, full disclosure, and private devotion. Why? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible is telling us. That all of the mystery of the kingdom is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And what God is doing in this moment and God is doing through his word is God is welcoming us into an unending mystery of the kingdom of God. A, a, a kingdom that is just too great for words. But a kingdom that is found in his son, Jesus Christ. Will we respond? Will we listen? Will we trust? Amen.